Well, hopefully you picked up a few parallels between those two passages. I sometimes wonder whether uh, Paul had Psalm 24 in mind when he wrote that section from 1 Timothy 6. Let's pray that God would help us to think about these passages this morning. Our dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. Give us clear minds and open hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is it all about? It's a good question to ask. It's a question, one which people often ask, and it's a question about which the world has quite a lot to say. So take contemporary music, for example. Various songs purport to answer the what it's all about question. Listen to the following song titles, which I came across during the week. One is called, It's All About the Money. It's all about the money. Or it's all about the bass very popular song from a few years ago. Or it's all about confidence, baby. That's the song. Not, I'm not just calling you baby. Uh, it's all about love. Another one, it's all about you. And surprise, surprise, there's a song entitled, it's all about me. Here we go. What about weddings? What's it all about at weddings? Many would say, well, wedding really is all about the bride, isn't it? Others might a bit more charitably say, well, it's all about the happy couple. You know, they include both of them, don't they? Some might even sort of say, well, it's all about the families, isn't it? Uh, you know, the, the, the uniting of two families together. What about today's passage, Psalm 24? What is Psalm 24 ultimately all about? Is it ultimately about its highly talented writer and creator, King David? Or... Is it about creation? I mean, creation gets a mention in the first verse of the psalm. Or is it all about you and me because we're the ones who are reading and thinking about it? We're, we're what it's all about. Well, what I'd like to suggest is that what Psalm 24 is ultimately all about, it's all about God. Now, whereas we can't tell it from our English translation, if we read the original Hebrew of it and we just ignored the heading for the psalm, the first word in Hebrew in the psalm is, in fact, the Lord's name. And you mention that first because you want to give it emphasis. Then if you read on through the psalm at the contents of the psalm following, you'll see that's all about God uh, as well. So this psalm is ultimately all about God. Now, that doesn't mean it has nothing to do with you and me, though, because if we're Christians, we're in a relationship with God, and so it's good to know about what this God is like so that we can respond appropriately and relate appropriately. And if we're not Christians, but we want to become Christians or we need to become Christians, it's good to know what this God is like. So that's what we're going to discover this morning. Now, um, if this is your first week here this year... Um, for the month of January, and in fact for the first week of February, we're doing a short series looking at Psalm chapters 24 to 28. Uh, last week we looked at the very famous 23rd Psalm, and we thought about the Lord as shepherd. Uh, but this week in Psalm 24, which we're looking at, we're particularly thinking about the Lord as king, or more specifically as the king of glory. Now, an outline of the major points, hopefully you've picked up on the way in, uh, or it's on the screen as well. Uh, first, we're going to be thinking about God, owner and creator, verses 1 to 2, and then God, holy and generous, verses 3 to 6, and then finally, God, king and victor, uh, verses 7 to 10. So that's where we're going. Let's start with God as owner and creator, verses 1 and 2. The psalm opens with very simple logic. It says everything is God's. Because God made everything. That's verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 1. Everything's God's. 
The, Lord, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So creation, world, plants, sky, sky, sea, animals, us, things we can see, things we can't see, it all belongs to God. Now, Adrian, Adrian, Abraham sorry, Kuyper was a famous Dutch theologian, journalist, and was in fact Prime Minister of Holland about 100 years ago. And he once famously said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He's saying everything is his. Now, some of you may know that my wife teaches at Kuiper Christian School, obviously named after the aforementioned Adrian Kuiper. And at the end of last year, I went along to a school event, uh, which is sort of like a fate, and doing the right thing, I thought I'd better purchase something rather. So I purchased this magnificent ruler uh, from the fate, Kuiper Christian School, it says. Then it's got a quote on it. Every square inch belongs to Jesus. Obviously, rulers have inches on them in the old days, like we now have centimetres, probably for the last 50 years. But anyway, Kuiper's Christian School is there with us. Uh, every square inch belongs to Jesus, and it's obviously referencing that quote by Abraham uh, Kuiper itself, that everything belongs to Jesus. So if everything's God, let's get a bit specific. And you probably won't believe me, but I'm going to tell you this anyway. If you own property, and you look at the title deeds, you'll probably see your name on it, won't you? But can I tell you, that property actually isn't really yours. Your property with your title deeds belongs to God. He owns it, if we're going to pay attention to the Bible. Look at your bank accounts. Go online, you know, there, there are your bank accounts there. There's your name. Actually, ultimately, your bank account isn't yours. That's not your money. According to the Bible, that money in your account is God's. Look at your family. You may share the same surname. But ultimately, the other people in the family aren't yours. They're God's. And here's a really unnerving one. Go home and look in the mirror. What do you see there? Your good self. Whose are you? Well, you don't belong to yourself. Ultimately, you belong to God. If you're a Christian, you certainly belong to God. And if you're not, the Bible says you still belong, you, you, you still belong to God because everything is God's. Now, how do you find this idea that you belong to God? You might find it a little unnerving. Uh, if you subscribe to the do what you want to do, be who you want to be philosophy, which is the contemporary philosophy, uh, the philosophy which seems to permeate so many things today, you will quietly resent or publicly resent the idea that God says that you belong to him. This idea that God, you know, our lives are our own and we can do what we like just seeps into everything. And one of the most uh, comically tragic things I've heard from a church context in recent years was relayed to me by our former church missionaries, Michael and Joe Charles. They went to a confirmation service in the country of Chile and, uh, and the, the, the minister there said to the confirmees, today you get something to the effect of, today you're getting confirmed, but when you leave today, let's face it, we all live busy lives, don't we? So for the rest of your lives, if you just have... Just a little bit of time for God, that'd be great. Just, can you give him just a little bit? I mean, what an absurd thing. Just, can you just give, please? You know, he'd be so grateful if you could just give him a little bit. I mean, your whole life is God's. Um, not just a little bit of time, all your time belongs to God and all their times and all our times are in God's hands. Just a little bit sounds ludicrous. But can I say, as dumb as it sounds, it's a trap we can pretty easily fall into because so often we, in effect, treat um, our Christian faith as a bit of a hobby. It's one of our areas of interest, along with sewing and, and supporting 
the Panthers, whoever you support, uh, or getting keeping fit, or, or whatever it is, right? Oh yeah, Christianity is one of the things I do as well. Uh, I'll try and fit it into my schedule. But of course, our entire schedule belongs to God. It's a question of how we're actually going to use it. Uh, a bit of a mind shift. Now, the Bible teaches that God creates us, uh, owns us, and, and loves us. So the fact that our lives belong to God is actually quite a comforting thought as well, because we're owned by someone who loves us, died for us, creates us, cares for us, knows us better than we know ourselves, knows the world better than we know it. I mean, there are no safer hands to be in than God's. So does this idea that we belong to God disturb us or comfort us? Um, viewed properly, it should be a comfort to us. And so I guess the question is, um, in terms of um, God's property and God's money and God's time and God's people, uh, how are we going to use what God has given us this year? Something to think about. Now, why is everything God's? Well, the second verse tells us because God made everything. He founded on the seas and established it on the waters. Simple but profound. The natural world and everything on it uh, was made by and belongs to God. Now, can I, can I say there's quite a bit of joy in knowing that everything was created by God? Uh, some of us are on holidays or will be on holidays soon. And often on holidays, you see some pleasant scenes, you know, a, a sunny beach or a, or, a, or a dark night sky or rolling hills or Alps or whatever it is. And if you appreciate the fact that not just that is a great view, but that is a great view which was created by God and made by God and isn't God awesome, uh, it adds a whole new dimension to our enjoyment of the world about us. And it's not just you know, the big things, but any area of human uh, endeavour. What about science? I was listening to a, a podcast during the week, recently by a guy called John Dixon. It's called Undeceptions. I, I recommend it to you. I think it's a good podcast. And on it, uh, he interviewed uh, a guy by the name of Andrew Briggs, who is the professor of nanomaterials at Oxford University. What are nanomaterials? Well, apparently they're super, super, super small microscopic things. He studies them. Um, and uh, here's what uh, Mr. Professor Briggs, who's a Christian, said about science. He says, the more science we can get our head around, the more amazing it becomes and the more wonderful it is. This sort of amazement doesn't inevitably lead to faith, but for those of us who are privileged to know the creator of it all, and he's referring to himself there, there's this extra degree of pleasure and enjoyment. So he's not just looking at nanomaterials, he's looking at got nanomaterials which God has created, and he gets this extra excitement and pleasure out of the fact of knowing who created it all. But of course, it's not just the natural world which God is ultimately responsible for, world, for he's also responsible for the cultural world. Because he created the people and gave them the minds that produced all the culture that we like. And so whether we like you know, music or architecture or reading or, or, or sport or, or whatever it is, ultimately we can thank God for the good aspects of that as well. How should we respond to all of that? Well, uh, we should praise God for his creation. We should recognise where all this good stuff comes from and ultimately praise and give thanks to God for it. It's proper and right to do it. And in fact, it's a tragedy and a shame when we don't thank the creator of something rather for what they've created. Let me give you a human example. Michelangelo. Michelangelo, the famous Renaissance sculptor. One of his most famous sculptors was a thing called the Pieta. I think it's found in the um, St. Peter's in the Vatican. And it's a sculpture of Mary, the mother of Jesus, sitting down, and on her lap she is holding 
the Jesus as if he'd just been taken down from the cross. So the adult Jesus, it's quite a, uh, a well-known uh, sculpture. And apparently after he'd done it, it was on display and people loved it. They thought, what a great sculpture. The problem was Michelangelo became aware that they thought that someone else had sculpted it, <laughs> that in fact one of Michelangelo's, not rivals, but some other sculptor, uh, Michelangelo got pretty put out by this, apparently, that they weren't giving him the credit for having sculpted it. So what he went and did, he went and put... His, basically, his, he carved his signature into the sculpture. And in fact, it's the only one of his sculptures that he ever actually signed. Why? Because he wanted people to realise where it actually came from, i.e. him. Um, it's appropriate to... Let's not fall into that mistake with God. I mean, if ultimately everything which we see sculpted about us comes from God, let's thank the right person. So, God, owner, and creator. Let's go on to the next uh, few verses, verses 3 to 6, under the heading God, holy, and generous. Now, uh, clearly, the God who made us and owns us is someone we should want to get to know. But the question is posed in the psalm, who can approach God? Verse 3, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? Now, why is this even a question? What's the problem? After all, in, ter in terms of mountains, anyone with a basic level of fitness can walk up a mountain or a hill. Now, I've walked up Mount Kosciuszko when I, I was younger, etc. What's the problem? Well, of course, uh, the mountain of the Lord is symbolic of the dwelling place of God. Now, God, of course, we know is everywhere, but the mountain of the Lord referred to here is symbolic of God's presence and, and of God who is holy. Now, the issue is that there is not a trace of evil or sin or wrongdoing in God. He can't tolerate evil, sin or wrongdoing. Yet we humans, of course, engage regularly in various forms of evil, sinful or wrong behaviour. And as a result, we can't just walk into God's presence. So this is all through the Bible. So Moses, for example, in Exodus chapter 33 is told by God, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. You can't just walk up and go as in an unforgiven state and go, hey, God, how's it going? Can't do it. Similarly, in the New Testament from our 1 Timothy 6 reading uh, refers to God who lives in unapproachable light. What's the thing about unapproachable light? Well, you can't approach it, can you? With whom no one uh, has seen or can see. So saying we can't even look at God there. So um, the presence of sin is intolerable to God even a little bit. Uh, and so flawed humans can't just approach him. Uh, this sort of reminds me of an experience I had in Finland a number of years ago. I was in Finland and I was having a sauna with a Finnish guy who I was friends with. Now, people in Finland love saunas. They grow up with the jolly things. And I was sitting in the sauna and it was massively hot. I don't know whether he had it at 100 degrees. It probably couldn't have been or my blood would have been boiling. Let's say he had it at 99 degrees. It was one of the most unpleasant experiences I've ever sat in in my entire life. I had to sit st absolutely stock still. And if I moved a part of my body a fraction of an inch, the, 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 the air going breathing past my skin made me feel like it was burning me. And I was just sort of going, turn it down, turn it down. Eventually he did. But I guess um, I couldn't have you know, really survived there by even most, if I'd made the slightest movement for very long. Uh, similarly, I sort of think it's like that with God's holiness. If we were in God's presence, the slightest bit of wrongdoing, it'd be sort of like we couldn't tolerate it, We'd, you know, whatever. Now, um, can I say, uh, um, is good that actually God doesn't like sin and wrongdoing? Just imagine for a moment that God didn't mind a bit of corruption. 
Or God, you know, didn't take abuse, interpersonal abuse too seriously. You know, that's fine. Uh, God didn't mind a bit of evil. I mean, imagine if God was like that. Imagine how it would entirely change everything. Thank goodness that God is perfectly good. But I guess the question is, how can we enter into his presence? Well, who can enter into his presence? Or who can approach God or ascend the mountain of the Lord? Well, verse 4 tells us, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Our hands refer to what we do, our hearts refer to what we sort of think. So we might sort of think, well, can anyone ever approach God? Can anyone ever ascend the mountain of the Lord or go into God's presence? Was it possible for anyone to do this in Old Testament times? There we go. There's a theological question. Could anyone in the Old Testament ever ascend the mountain of the Lord in the way described in this psalm? Well, the answer is yes or no, depending on what you mean by that. Let me quickly explain. If we're talking about just going up the mountain of the Lord in the sense of going to Jerusalem, going to the temple or the tabernacle to worship God, well, that was possible to do. And one commentator I read said that uh, to worship God in an Old Testament way like that, uh, it didn't require you to be have absolute moral integrity because otherwise no person could possibly worship God in that way. Rather, you should approach God in worship if you wanted or desired to be righteous. So for people in the Old Testament times who desired to be righteous, uh, this guy is saying, yes, you, you could go to the temple of the Lord, you could ascend the mountain of the Lord and worship God in that way. However, if ascending the mountain of the Lord and approaching God means actually, literally going into his actual heavenly presence, well, of course, no one can do that. What about now? Is it possible for people now uh, to approach God? Well, can I say it is possible to approach God now thanks to Jesus. How can we do that? Well, because of what Jesus has done in enabling us to be forgiven. You knew I was going to say that, but let me prove that from a few passages of Scripture. Hebrews 19, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, so we can, thanks to Jesus, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. So we as Christians today can draw near to God now, and we will be able to draw near to God in heaven, by receiving the benefits of Jesus' death in our place. And we receive that by asking him to forgive us and saying we want to follow him. Then, as forgiven people though, we will want to live with clean hands and a pure heart. We don't have clean hands and a pure heart to get into a relationship with God. Only Jesus can do that for us. But once we are in a relationship with God, we want to live with clean hands and a pure heart. So with our hands, we'll want to think about what we take, what we touch, what we turn on, what we type. We want to make sure that honours God. And with our hearts, we we'll want to make sure that we're honouring God with our hearts and he is first and foremost in our lives. Now, for the person who is then living that way with clean hands and a pure heart and, and seeking to ascend the mountain of the Lord and, and to know God, communion with God leads to blessing. Look at verses 5 and 6. Uh, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. Now, there are many blessings associated with knowing God. Perhaps the chief one of which is knowing God, right? Uh, simply think about marriage. If you're married, your own marriage, hopefully, or your parents' marriage or a marriage you know. What's, what, are the, what are the benefits of being married? Well, there are many 
It might be that you get better meals than what you otherwise would have had. It might mean that you're more financially secure than you otherwise would have been. It makes it much easier to raise children um, uh, if, if, there are t if there are two of you unable able to do it. Um, but perhaps the best thing about being married is just being married to the other person. The other person itself is, is, is the best thing. Now, it said that it's been said of Christians, here's a, here's a phrase, that we have union with God, but we should seek communion with God. We have union with God, but we should seek communion with God. Christians have union with God. We're united to Christ. If we're Christians because of the work of Jesus, we are united to God. But our level of communion with God can rise and fall. In the same way that for a married couple, their union, while their marriage is constant, their level of communion with each other can go up and down. I was reading um, the Gospel Coalition website during the week and I read the, uh, the thoughts of an American guy, Professor Kelly Capick. And he said that communion is got with God is how we were made to function and it's the key to human flourishing. How do we flourish as humans? We commune with God. I guess the question I like to pose myself and yourself is, do you want to commune? I mean, okay, so you're united with God as a Christian, but do you want to commune with God closer this year? Do you? Do you? If you want to do that, think about the things that you will do in terms of Bible reflection, prayer, thinking about him throughout the day that will help you to commune with God better uh, is what we were created for. So God holding and generous. Finally, we'll look at the last four verses, 7 to 10, under the heading God, King and Victor. And these final verses give us a bit of a hint as to the context in which this psalm might originally have been used. Question, do you like a good victory march? I don't know whether you've ever been in a victory march, perhaps in some sporting march past or end of season march, or you went in some march in the city. Um, most of you will probably know that Argentina recently won the Men's uh, Football World Cup, and this caused pandemoniums of enthusiasm in the country of Argentina, as you can probably imagine. And recently, or not long after that, uh, they had a parade in the capital of Argentina, Buenos Aires, where the idea was that they put the Argentinian football team on the back of an open-top bus, on the top of an open-top bus, and drive it through the cities, and there was going to be a, a bit of a victory parade. Now, as I've read it, millions, and literally millions, and I mean in the traditional sense of the word literal, not in the way your kids probably use the word literal, uh, literally, uh, millions of people turned out. And I've seen photographs. It's incredible. And the bus could hardly get anywhere. So many people were there. So they had to actually get the players off the bus into helicopters, and they did sort of what they described as a, um, what's the word here? Um, an aerial parade with the team in a helicopter flying over the, the crowd. Yeah, victory parade. Uh, a spokesman for the president of Argentina referred to the explosion of people's happiness. Now, uh, I think that's a sort of parade which is possibly being, in some sense, referred to here. The psalm, Psalm 24, it's thought was probably associated with some sort of victory march into Jerusalem. Um, perhaps it was associated with the return of the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament through Jerusalem after victory in battle. The Ark would be coming back into Jerusalem, there would be cheering, and perhaps this psalm would be used. Or it may refer to the first time that the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem under King David in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And it might have been used in reenactments of that thereafter. 
So uh, look at the military tone in verses 7 and 8. You can, and just imagine that the ark's coming into Jerusalem. Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory, remember the ark of the covenant represented God's presence, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So it would be quite appropriate uh, to use in that context. Now, verses 9 and 10 repeat the same sort of idea, but include the term Lord Almighty for God. Now, in some translations, like the ESV, that's translated Lord of hosts, which is you know, Lord of hosts, head of armed forces, head of an army. So the idea in this final section is God as the king of glory and the mighty warrior, probably used when the ark's coming back into Jerusalem. Now, all of this also, though, more importantly for us, reminds us of Jesus. Jesus, as we know, is a glorious king, but the New Testament also refers to Jesus in terms of a warrior as well. You could go, I think, to Revelation for that. But look at Colossians chapter 2. It says of Jesus that having disarmed, disarmed, there's a military term, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, like a military term, over them by the cross. God as king of glory and mighty warrior. Now, what should our response to all this be? Well, I think one good response would be enthusiastic praise. If you look at the final uh, verses of this psalm, you can imagine them being perhaps chanted, perhaps, you know, uh, question and response as, as the ark is coming in, in, into Jerusalem. It's enthusiastic, it's emotional, it's celebratory, it's God-focused. Uh, things, all of which could be said of the Argentinian parade after their football team, except for the fact that that wasn't God-focused. You know, enthusiastic, emotional, celebratory. I wonder what we could do today, which would be enthusiastic, emotional, celebratory and God-focused of this nature. So, for example, after the service, we could get Chris Sheeman's guitars and, and Andrew's bass, and we could go prating down Hawkesbury Road, singing praises to God and chanting things and yelling, you know, I mean, that would be one thing which we could do, except we get arrested. Probably the more culturally appropriate version today is how do we enthusiastically and emotionally express praise to God? Of course, it's in song, isn't it? Um, singing is one of the things we do to respond to God's greatness. And can I say, over Christmas time, I found myself in a number of services here in our church, here and at the factory and elsewhere, uh, where I felt that I really was enthusiastically praising God with a huge mass of people together as one. I found that very encouraging and I hope you did as well. Um, let me conclude. What's the psalm all about? Well, I said it's all about God. God is creator, he is owner, he's holy, he's generous, he's king of glory, he's victorious warrior. How might we respond? Well, by recognising that. By living in, getting into union and living with communion with that God and then finally by responding with enthusiastic praise. And I think the final verse of the, of the psalm is very appropriate. It says, who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Let me pray. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us a deeper and more genuine understanding of what you are like. Uh, you are the King of glory, you are the victorious warrior, and you are so many other things. Help us to live more closely in communion with you and help us to respond with enthusiastic praise amongst other things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.